Hello and welcome. I'm David Beard, contributing editor for Daily Coast Elections. And I'm David Neer, political director of Daily Coast. The Down Ballot is a weekly podcast dedicated to the many elections that take place below the presidency, from Senate to City Council. You can email us your thoughts at thedownballot at dailycoast.com or find us on Twitter at DK Elections. And please subscribe to The Down Ballot wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and review. But let's go ahead and get to today's episode. What are we going to be covering here? We have a bunch of elections to recap. There was a special election for a congressional seat in Texas. There were primaries in South Carolina that saw one pro-impeachment Republican go down to defeat. And there was also an unusual Saturday special election in Alaska for the seat that had been held for decades by the late Republican Congressman Don Young. So we'll be talking about all of that. And after we recap those weekly hits, we are going to be discussing Wisconsin with the chair of the state Democratic Party, Ben Wickler, who will tell us exactly what a state party like his does and the key races that they're focusing on this November. So please stick with us. Primary season continues apace, but we also had an election on Saturday. We'll get to that one in a minute. But Beard, why don't you kick us off with the top goings on from Tuesday night? Sure. So we're going to start in Texas, where there was a special election held to fill the remaining term for Democratic Representative Philemon Vela, who resigned earlier this year to take a job at a lobbying firm. Conservative activist Myra Flores flipped this Rio Grande Valley-based district to the GOP. She won about 51% of the vote. There were four candidates on the ballot, but just one major Republican and one major Democrat, and then two very minor, one Democrat and one Republican who took a very small percentage of the vote each. And so Flores won 51% of the vote. The major Democratic candidate, former Cameron County Commissioner Dan Sanchez, won about 43% of the vote. Now, there's a couple of mitigating factors here. Republicans spent over a million dollars on this race. They really invested. Democrats only began airing TV ads in the final week. They didn't spend very much money. This district is changing a significant amount. Biden won the current district, which is still from the 2010 redistricting cycle, by a 52 to 48 margin. But Biden wins the new district that will go into effect this November by a 57-42 margin. So it's getting noticeably more Democratic. And so there wasn't a ton of investment in trying to hold the seat on the Democratic side. That being said, that's definitely a shift in the in the margin from 52-48 Biden to if you combine the Democrats and the Republicans, about 53 percent voted Republican and 47 percent voted Democrat. So that's you know a noticeable shift. It's certainly in line with a more Republican-leaning year, which is sort of what we've been seeing with the polling and with other information that's been coming in. The other factor here that's certainly worth noting is that it was very, very low turnout. 
So that can also be a factor in you know, why there was somewhat of a shift. So you don't want to take this and just say, oh, we saw this shift. It'll translate all the way to November in every way. But it's certainly a signal. It's a signal worth acknowledging that it is certainly a sign of you know, a Republican-leaning environment right now. The other thing to note is that had Flores not gotten a majority of the vote, the race would have gone to a runoff. And Sanchez was actually quite angry at the Democratic establishment and the DCCC in particular for coming in so late. And it does seem that with a little bit more effort, Flores could have been held under the 50% mark, and maybe Democrats would have lost in a second round. But you'd certainly always rather have the chance to fight another day. Yeah, I think the thinking of the Democrats is, even if it's only going to be around for six months, it's still worth fighting for. Flores only won 51% of the vote. You would think that a real investment here had the Democratic Party done that from the start. When the Republicans started investing, there was a good chance she could have been held under that and it would have gone to a runoff. And then who knows? You, you never know with 100% certainty how an election is going to turn out. So we'll switch gears to a couple of primaries in South Carolina that have been framed as Trump's revenge. And he did, in fact, exact revenge against a Republican congressman in the 7th District, Tom Rice, who was one of the 10 who voted for impeachment. Rice got completely obliterated by State Rep. Russell Fry, who beat him 51-25 and what was even more remarkable about this is there were five Republicans total challenging Rice. So for Fry to get a majority of the vote was pretty unexpected. Even Fry claimed that his own polling showed the race going to a runoff. Really, though, this whole outcome feels pretty predictable. The 7th District, which is in the PD region in the state's northeastern corner, was actually Trump's best district in the 2016 GOP presidential primary, and the seat really barely changed at all in redistricting. What I think matters most here is what this says for the remaining pro-impeachment House Republicans who still have primaries yet to come. So of the 10, four decided to retire. Rice is the first to actually lose. And there is still one, David Valadeo in California, whose primary hasn't been resolved yet. He probably will survive. And then four more after that. I think the two who are probably going to be at most risk right now are Peter Meyer in Michigan's third congressional district. And of course, Liz Cheney, where we've seen multiple polls now showing her getting completely obliterated. Rice, kind of an enigma. He was always a very low key, extremely conservative guy, but he just felt that Jan 6th, really, he had had enough. And in remarks a few weeks ago before the primary, he even referred to Trump as a dictator. And he seemed completely dispirited about the direction of the Republican Party. He said that Trump just wants the entire GOP to be yes men. And his diagnosis is is exactly right, of course. And really, there is absolutely nothing to feel about this outcome except being deeply depressed at the state of the GOP going even further toward cult status. And I think what we can see, particularly as it looks like, as you mentioned, Cheney and Meyer are probably in very tough shape given this election result, that the only real protection for a Republican 
running after having voted to impeach Trump is to be in a state like California or Washington state where they do a top two primary so that they can, you know, sort of outpace that person with other votes, potentially Democratic and independent votes, and don't have to face them in a Republican electorate. That's where the three, you mentioned Valadeo, and there's two in Washington state who have a good shot to move on to the general election are. And honestly, at this point, I would be surprised if any of the other ones did. And the other South Carolina race that was really closely watched last night, I think reinforces this as well. This is the first district where Representative Nancy Mace beat former state representative Katie Arrington, 53-45. So she won without a runoff. Trump also despised Mace and he endorsed Arrington. Trump was pissed at Mace because right after Jan 6th, she made a few comments that were critical of him. But unlike Tom Rice, who really stuck to his guns the whole way through, she very, very quickly backed off. She did not vote for impeachment. And a number of press accounts refer to her as a Trump critic. That's complete bullshit. A few months ago, Nancy Mace did one of the most humiliating things we have seen in an era when Republican politicians regularly humiliate themselves. She, the day after Trump endorsed Arrington, Mace went up to New York City, 800 miles away from her district, and filmed a video. I feel it looked like it was filmed on a cell phone of her in front of Trump Tower, pledging her loyalty to Donald Trump. And it was just super, super cringy. It was totally gross. And it totally worked for her. She really spent much of the race trying to prove her Trumpy bona fides. She also laid some effective attacks on Arrington, who was responsible for this seat flipping to the Democrats in 2018. Mace picked it up for the Republicans again in 2020. But really, the only lesson here is maybe you can get back in the graces of enough Trumpy voters, even if you can't win Trump back himself, simply by licking his boots. And man, if anything, not that Donald Trump is clever enough to see it this way, but winning back a one-time smiled critic is almost more powerful because it just shows your absolute dominance. You know, he was never going to get Rice back, but now he's brought Mace back to heel he can obviously do it with anyone else who even has dared utter any negative comments about him in recent years. So again, I think a truly dismaying outcome. Yeah. And that reminds me of the Ohio Senate primary, actually, where Trump ended up endorsing Vance. And the sort of talking point going around was that Trump actually likes when formerly Trump critical Republicans sort of come crawling back and like, go over the top to prove themselves loyal to Trump like Mace has done. So while his candidate didn't win, I don't think he'll be too upset about the outcome given how Mace has acted. So our last election that we're going to cover in the weekly hits is the election that took place on Saturday. It was the special election for Alaska's at-large congressional seat that's taking place due to Representative Don Young passing away earlier this year. So Alaska has a sort of different electoral system all of the candidates were in the ballot in this first round, and the top four candidates will advance to a second round on August 16th. 
And that ballot will use ranked choice voting to determine the winner, which means that anybody who votes can rank the four candidates, one, two, three, four, and then the fourth place candidate from those results will get eliminated. And if you had voted for that candidate first, the candidate that you voted for second will then get your vote. The same thing would happen with the third place candidate after those votes are reallocated. And then you would only have two candidates remaining. And the person then with the majority of those two candidates would be the person elected. Ballots are still being counted, but the AP has declared three of the four candidates who are going to advance to the second round. The first being former Governor Sarah Palin, who has sort of a clear lead so far with about 30% of the vote. Of course, Palin is a Republican, as is the so far second place candidate, businessman Nick Begich, who has about 19% of the vote. And then Independent Al Gross, who is also the former 2020 Democratic nominee for Senate, but is running now as an independent. He's also been called to advance. He has about 13% of the vote so far. And then the fourth slot hasn't been called yet, but former Democratic State Representative Mary Peltola is currently in that spot and will likely advance as well, unless late-breaking ballots are radically different than what's been counted so far. Palin's strong first round showing, getting over 30% of the vote, makes it likely that she'll be one of the last two candidates standing when this ranked choice voting takes place. So the big question is who's going to make it into that other slot where the fourth place candidate and then the third place candidate are eliminated. So if Begich advances, he's probably favored to consolidate the anti-Palin vote as he's a fellow Republican, but would probably collect the overwhelming number of independent and Democratic votes. But if either Al Gross or Peltola advance, then Palin would probably be the favorite as the only Republican of the two candidates when the ranked choice voting takes place. But that's not certain. I don't want to say that that one of the other two candidates couldn't beat Palin in that last two candidates portion, but we'll have to wait and see. I think Palin would be the favorite in that circumstance. Palin was always a polarizing figure, but she has Donald Trump's endorsement, which makes it much more likely that Begich would pick up those independents and Democrats, as you were suggesting. If it is those two facing off against each other at the very end of the instant runoff tabulations, one other thing we should note is that the second round, which you said is taking place on August 16th, that is also the day of the state's regular primary And there is, once again, going to be a huge ballot of candidates seeking this position for a full term. And usually when you have these simultaneous elections, you see the same sets of candidates advance. But because things are so unusual, this is the first time any state anywhere has ever used this top four system. We could wind up with a different group of four candidates who advance to the November general election, which, again, will also be decided by an instant runoff. So if for no other reason, just watching this unique electoral system unfold, uh, it's going to be worth watching both of these races, the special and the regular election. And incumbency in Alaska is so important, as we've seen. So it'll be interesting to see in that primary vote, they won't know who the incumbent is. So similar to this one, it'll be sort of a free-for-all, as we saw so many candidates ran in this first round. Well, that wraps up our weekly hits. We are going to be talking after the break with the chair of the Wisconsin Democratic Party, Ben Wickler, about all of the fascinating races that his state has in store for us this year. So please stay with us after the break. 
it seems that Wisconsin tops the list of states with incredibly important and incredibly competitive elections. That was certainly true in 2018, in 2020, and it's going to be true again this November in 2022. We have joining us today on the down ballot, the chair of the Wisconsin Democratic Party, Ben Wickler, to tell us everything that is going on in his state this year. Ben, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much, Nir. Thanks so much, Beard. It's great to be with the Davids. So, Ben, you haven't exactly had what might be called a typical path to becoming chair of your state party. I would love it if you could tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and how it is you came to run the Wisconsin Dems. Sure. So in the short term, Wisconsin uh, has a elected state party chair. You're elected by conventions to our state party convention. That happened with me in June of 2019. But if you go back in time, I, I grew up in Madison. I actually live in the house that I grew up in. I bought it for my mom, who now lives four blocks away. And uh, my wife, Beth, and I have three young kids. So we have lots of helpful grandparent time, which is great. I got involved in politics a lot as a kid. My godmother, a woman named Ada Deer, ran for Congress when I was 11 and became the first American Indian woman to win a congressional primary. So knocking on doors for her and you know, stuffing envelopes, putting up yard signs was kind of my entree into volunteering for campaigns. I got to volunteer for a then state representative who ran for Congress named Tammy Baldwin, who's now well-known as our uh, fantastic U.S. Senator, uh, worked in the governor's race. I also got very involved in activism and in comedy writing because The Onion was based in Madison. And so my friends and I were obsessed with it. And we wrote for uh, first an underground student newspaper in middle school, another one in high school. And then eventually we kept sending every issue to The Onion HQ. And eventually they wrote back and invited us to come in. So my friend uh, Peter Keckley and I, who went on to help launch Upworthy, um, started writing Onion headlines when we were seniors in high school. And that path led to, in college, I got very involved in activism and interned for Russ Feingold. And as a college student, I met my wife putting, putting up posters for a protest together uh, and fell in love with her. And then my senior year in college, I met a comedian who was increasingly involved in politics named Al Franken. And my background with The Onion and doing political stuff led him to hire me to work with him on the book Lies and the Lying Liars Who Tell Them a Fair and Balanced Look at the Right. And I worked at Air America Radio as the, one of the producers on his radio show. And that was my, kind of my entree to the national progressive movement. That's where I first met Marcos Melitis and people involved in Daily Coast and tons of folks. Uh, there was a Harvard professor that we would book on the show to talk about bankruptcy and you know the way that tax laws worked named Elizabeth Warren. Uh, there were all these fascinating people who came through and were on the show. I wound up, when, when Al Franken moved to Minnesota, I moved to Ohio and worked for Sherrod Brown's first Senate race and then worked for different advocacy and organizing organizations for a bunch of years until I was at MoveOn um, as the DC director in 2013 through, I guess, 18, um, and was involved first in trying to stop Trump from, from getting power um, and then in trying to organize this huge pushback to stop the repeal of the Affordable Care Act and the gutting of Medicaid. I got to work with disability rights activists and so many people who were mobilizing all across the country. During all this time, I had dreamed of eventually raising my family in Wisconsin. And my, my wife had heard me singing Wisconsin's praises from our first date on in 2018. After our third child arrived, we decided to move back. And I volunteered a whole bunch for the Evers campaign and you know, for uh, for, for Baldwin's re-election campaign at that point. And then when it actually landed in Wisconsin, the, the then state party chair decided not to run for a third term. So I threw my hat in the ring and wound up 
crisscrossing the state, going to county party meetings, talking to all these people, learning everything I could about all the, the things we needed to do to win and was elected that June. And it has been a nonstop roller coaster ever since for the last three years. I was reelected in 2021. Let's talk a little bit about what that roller coaster ride has been like. You know, I'm sure that some of our listeners are probably pretty plugged into their own state democratic parties, but I'll bet that many folks aren't necessarily all that familiar with what their state parties do. And of course, the goal of any party organization is to get their candidates elected. But what exactly does the Wisconsin Democratic Party do to make that happen? The biggest part of our budget and the the kind of crown jewel, the, the, the central thing that we do on a year round basis is organize in every corner of the state. Um, our state party unusually uses the Obama campaign model where our organizers actually build teams of volunteers that run door-to-door canvassing and phone banking operations in their own communities. And when you do that on a continuous basis, as we've done now uh, since my predecessor uh, who launched these neighborhood teams in the spring of 2017, we built and built and built them. We now have hundreds across the state. When you do that continuously, you actually build momentum over time. So every dollar you spend on organizing goes further because you can have one organizer who's working with multiple teams to to coach and support them and make sure they have the data they need. But you don't have to have a a staff member at every Canvas launch location. You can have teams running door-to-door canvases from their living rooms and from coffee shops around the state. So that is one huge part, but it's it's now so much more than that as well. Uh, We have a communications team that is doing everything we can to make sure folks know how terrible Ron Johnson is and how terrible the the other Republicans running for governor and Congress and state legislature are. We have a voter protection operation that works now on a year-round basis. It it didn't used to be year-round, but something we've really focused on over these last few years that works to make sure that local clerks aren't rolling back voting rights, that we're recruiting and supporting poll workers, poll observers, uh, lawyers who uh, are able to help voters resolve issues. We run a voter protection hotline uh, that uh, any of our, our listeners who happen to be in Wisconsin uh, can, can call it 608-DEM-3232. We have a, a data team that helps make sure we're figuring out where the voters we need to mobilize are and who we need to persuade. We have a political team that includes the staff that just make sure the party operates in terms of supporting our county parties and congressional district parties and youth caucuses, um, our state administrative committee, which is my boss. It's our, it's our kind of statewide board um, and organizes our state party convention. Every state party does one of these every year. Ours is coming up later this month, the 25th to 26th of June in La Crosse, Wisconsin. It's going to be amazing. Um, there's a coalitions team, which is also a year-round team that specializes in working with building the coalitions partnership with Black and Latino, um, Asian American, Pacific Islander, Wisconsinites, with tribal nations, sovereign nations across Wisconsin, uh, with rural Wisconsinites, with LGBTQ Wisconsinites, to, to make sure that our Big Ten party includes and lifts up everybody. Uh, we have a a candidate services team that this spring worked with hundreds of local candidates running for offices like school board and city council to make sure that they were able to run digital ads, to be able to send mailings to their their constituents, and to connect with our field organizers to make sure that we were knocking on doors and, and supporting folks running for those offices. They'll be back at it this fall with state legislative races and other races. Um, and all of this is supported by our finance and HR and operations teams that do all the kind of back-end work that makes an organization go. So there's a whole bunch of people. But the big idea here is candidates should have to be great at being candidates, but they don't also 
And they shouldn't also have to be great at figuring out how to stand up an organizing program or doing things that really shouldn't just be starting when the general election begins. There were days in the past in Wisconsin where if someone wanted to run for Senate, they would have to find a statewide organizing director and fill in all the levels of that organizing program, sometimes in just a few months at the end. In in 2016, Hillary Clinton's team hired their first staff in Wisconsin that August and had no time at all to try to figure out, you know, who should be talking to whom. The party can take care of all that. If you have a, a well-funded, well-run organization, it's like a permanent piece of campaign infrastructure. And then the candidates can just focus on things that only a candidate can do. Um, all of our candidates across Wisconsin now with the Democratic Party trust and work with our coordinated campaign so that when we knock on doors, we talk about everyone running up and down the ballot. And that means that people who might not run for office otherwise can do so. It's almost like a form of public financing where people know that they won't need to raise the money for those pieces of the work because the party can take care of that. And that's allowed us to welcome just an extraordinary group of folks running for office, holding office now. It's one reason why we have uh, these uh, contested primaries for a bunch of the statewide offices in November because folks know that they, they don't need to do every piece. They just need to focus in on the, the, the being a candidate part of being a candidate. Yeah, I've often heard it described as running a campaign is like building a small business, except it t- you do it in the course of six to nine months, maybe a year, and you build it with the entire idea of going to election day and then sort of all but throwing away that small business that you spent all this time creating. But of course, you know, a state party like yours can do so much of the infrastructure work that makes that so much more feasible for so many more people. That's exactly right. And it's so, I mean, it's from a business perspective, it is so dumb to do all this work and all this research and all this hiring and then lay everybody off. Like it just doesn't make any sense. Um, Amen. By having organizers on the ground year over year over year, it's like a flywheel. You know, it's like, you, it keeps on spinning faster and faster. So we had more volunteer shifts this spring than we had in the spring of 2021 and more in 2021 than we had in 2020 when we had a much bigger staff uh, you know, because we have kept these neighborhood teams going. And so the, the kind of the impact of supporting a state party actually grows each time because you get all these things established and you don't have to start from, start from scratch every time there's a, a new race on the horizon. So let's dive into the upcoming Wisconsin elections this November, which has two extremely important races at the top of the ticket. You've already mentioned Governor Evers and Senator Johnson. Johnson is one of the worst senators in the country. He regularly makes odious statements and claims. A lot of people outside of Wisconsin, I'm sure, have heard about him and heard not good things about him. But tell us how that race is shaping up and the race against him on the Democratic side. Ron Johnson is so, so appallingly, extraordinarily bad. Uh, he is, it's, it's not just that he you know, says that COVID can be cured with mouthwash or says that the January 6th uh, insurrectionists were patriots who love their country and love law enforcement, which is something he actually said. He said he w- would have been scared if it had been Black Lives Matter protesters, but he wasn't scared uh, with the, the protesters that were actually there. It's not just all that stuff. It's that he is profoundly self-serving. He, his claim to fame as a senator is that he insisted on an extra tax break on top of Trump's giant tax scam that personally benefited him and his biggest donors massively. It's one of the most regressive tax cuts ever passed through the United States Congress uh, that he insisted on putting in. And then he, he's been billing taxpayers to fly him back to Congress from his vacation home in Florida. So we have been making this case against him, and so many independent and grassroots organizations have done the same thing. His approval rating is now 36% which is stunning in a year that's supposed to be 
you know, tough for Democrats and good for Republicans. He's one of he's the Cook Political Report called him the most vulnerable incumbent from either party in the Senate in 2022. And meanwhile, on the Democratic side, there's a contested primary. There's a bunch of candidates who've made the ballot, but we won't know our nominee until August 9th. And so this is a perfect kind of case in point for why having a strong party matters, because we have to build the whole general election apparatus before August 9th. It's like building a spaceship, you know, right on the launch pad. And then once we have the nominee, they jump into the cockpit and they hit ignition. We do not want to do the building the plane as you fly it metaphor that people often use, because that is not sound aviation safety practice. You want to actually have the thing built before there's a, before there's a pilot. So that's the, the work that we're doing. But I think we really have a shot because he's just so repellent to so many voters. And it's not just that people don't want to vote for him. It's that the chance to vote against him will cause more people to vote. He is a negative voter turnout machine for our side. And we're going to do everything we can to make sure folks know just how bad he is and that they have the power to oust him, that it is worth getting up off the couch and you know, going in or better yet, casting an absentee ballot so we know you voted in advance. Uh, those things can make the difference, not just to defeat him, but also we hope to expand the Democratic majority in, Cong in, in the Senate and give us a chance to actually pass into law so many of the things Democrats are fighting for. And we've seen negative partisanship be a real motivating factor, most prominently at the presidential level, of course. But when you've got a senator like Johnson, who's so prominent and so has so many negative feelings rightfully created among so many Wisconsin citizens, like that's a that's a motivating factor for them, for sure. Absolutely. And, you know, I talk to folks, I mean, I will say some of our fundraising success this year has come because people want to make sure that Ron Johnson does not win. And certainly there's volunteer shifts. It reminds me a lot of the campaign against Scott Walker in 2018, where people saw that he was vulnerable, saw that he was terrible. Tons of candidates ran. And in that election, everyone came together around the nominee and we were able to we were able to prevail. I think, you know, we're, we're looking for a similar path in the Senate race. And I think we have a very, very good chance of of ending Ron Johnson's political career this November. Can you tell us a little bit more about this spaceship that you're building on the launch pad for the eventual Democratic nominee for the Senate race? Absolutely. So it's it's all the pieces of the party that I spoke about the um, the the digital, the data, the organizing, the voter protection, the communications, uh, you know, all these different elements. Um, specifically in some cases with staff just focused on Ron Johnson and the Senate race. And then with each of the Senate campaigns, uh, we want to make sure that they know that we're doing all these different pieces and you know, understand what they anticipate their needs will be. So whoever the nominee is, and I should mention our state party, because of our state party constitution, we are bound and committed to remaining neutral in the primary. So we're not putting our thumb on the scale, uh, but all the candidates have told us that once we have a nominee, they will work with the infrastructure that we've put in place, as opposed to doing what has often happened in, in different states around the country, which is you get a seven-minute nominee and they decide they want to you know, reshuffle all the staff and reshape how the program works and all this kind of stuff. This is the same strategy we used with the presidential in 2020. We built a presidential-scale campaign through the state party. We kept briefing all the candidates in the primary about it, and then eventually we had a nominee, and the nominee just adopted our operation wholesale and added their you know their in-state staff to do the things that the nominee needed. But the, the organizing whole structure, all these different pieces – uh, were were held and carried forward, and that meant that we were, the relationships we built, the trust we built, all that kind of stuff was actually preserved and accelerated, as opposed to being you know broken down and then attempted to 
you know, there was no Humpty Dumpty situation with a, a fall and then a, a reassembly. So in the race for governor, you almost have the inverse situation where we know who the Democratic nominee is going to be. Of course, that's going to be Governor Evers. But Republicans are in the midst of a really nasty primary that I don't think has gone maybe exactly as at least some folks might have expected. So can you fill us in on who the major players are there and what you see happening and the final outcome being there? I will say that we went to the Republican State Party Convention a few weeks ago and had a mobile billboard with an image, a, a, a animation of a dumpster fire and held the press conference in front of the dumpster fire mobile billboard because that is what is hap- that, that is what the Republican gubernatorial primary is. This is a group of extremist candidates that keep on leapfrogging each other into the most radical fringes of the right-wing fever swamps. Uh, Rebecca Clayfish was the first to announce she was Scott Walker's lieutenant governor. If you go to radicalrebecca.com, you can find out more about her. She is someone who just keeps like kind of lurching and grabbing to the right. She, just to give one example, Wisconsin has an 1849 ban on abortion. This is pre-Civil War law. The only exception, it says in the statute, if two doctors agree that an abortion is necessary to save the life of the mother, that's the only condition where it could be allowed. Rebecca Clayfish wants to remove that exception from that law. She is, it is, it's so far out of step with where our, our values and, and the vast majority of Wisconsinites are. She's also wants to completely scrap our bipartisan Wisconsin Elections Commission. She said that there should be a, an elected official in charge so there would be one throat to choke. That is a direct quote, one throat to choke in charge of the elections. And she was pushed on this by election officials who said, don't use these metaphors when you're talking about election administrators. And she said, oh, I use that phrase all the time. That was her, her big defense. It's alarming. But apparently, <laughs> radical Rebecca Clayfish isn't extreme right enough for Donald Trump because Donald Trump has endorsed a different candidate, Tim Michaels, who jumped into the race very late and has been scrambling to get to the furthest right position in this primary that he can possibly find. He, this week, came out against marriage equality, which is one of those arguments that you thought was over. He supports going back to the 19th century with the 1849 abortion ban in Wisconsin. He joins Rebecca Clayfish in wanting to totally scrap our bipartisan Wisconsin's Elections Commission. He, he's, you know, he's talked about 2020 being rigged. He's he's one of these kind of Doug Mastriano, ultra hard right candidates who the more voters find out about what he actually thinks about things, the less support that he has. There's two others in the race as well. There's a guy named Timothy Ramthan who wants to retroactively decertify the 2020 election which has no basis in the Constitution or law, but that doesn't stop him. Uh, Tim Ranthon has a bill that would allow any election where the margin of victory is less than the number of absentee ballots cast in the race to be nullified. That bill so far has not moved through the state legislature, but I, I have now come to believe that that nothing's impossible with this, these Republicans. And then the guy named Kevin Nicholson, who actually used to be the president of the College Democrats, but now is the kind of pet project of Dick Uline, who is the biggest funder of the Stop the Steal rally and is a, you know, is, is right there with Rebecca Mercer in the kind of ultra hard right authoritarian billionaire category. So that is the Republican slate of candidates for governor. We won't know which one is the nominee until August 9th, but we can already tell that all of them are so far out on the right that we have a real shot at defeating them with a candidate as commonsensical and pragmatic and focused on doing the right thing as 
our Democratic governor, Tony Evers. So Tony Evers won in 2018 by 1.1 percentage points, which I call a Wisconsin landslide. We're the only state where four of the last six presidential races has come down to less than one percentage point. Tony Evers ran on a platform of protecting healthcare, supporting our schools, and fixing the damn roads, which is a pretty salty language there. And uh, he has fixed the roads. He's paved, he's paved enough roads to drive to Denver and back. He has restored funding to our schools, which are now back in the top 10 in the country. He's protected healthcare and gotten shots into arms. He's also kept his campaign promise to cut taxes for the middle class. He's he signed into law a 15% income tax cut, and he's invested stimulus funds in small businesses. We've had 4,200 small businesses open storefronts and expand operations on main streets across our state. So we have record low unemployment right now, and we have a state budget surplus. And he's he's demonstrated that the Democratic kind of basic idea of investing from the middle out to grow the economy in a way that works for people can succeed in Wisconsin. And that has made him someone that people basically trust. The last public poll, uh, 40% of people uh, disagreed with the statement, he cares about people like me. 54% of people agreed. Most Wisconsinites know that he's on their side. And that's it's a, it's such a clear contrast, someone who just wakes up wanting to help people and do what's right, as opposed to this group of Republicans who are you know, supplicating for for Trump's endorsement for the far right fringe of their party, and especially trying to rig the rules and potentially overturn our democracy. That's a contrast that works well for us in a year that I recognize is going to be tough nationally. I think we have a very good shot at winning two races that the Cook Political Report calls a toss-up, both the Senate and the governor's race. For those of us who've watched Wisconsin from the outside, we've seen Governor Evers stand as a bulwark against some absolutely batshit legislation that Republicans have passed in the legislature. So maybe tell us about a, a few of the examples that Evers has prevented from becoming law. Uh, I appreciate that question. He, he calls himself a goalie. He didn't realize that would be such an important part of his job when he was when he was first running. And in 2020, I should mention, Governor Evers put his campaign on hold and just focused on supporting state legislative candidates through a project called Save the Veto that was a partnership with the state party. And we managed to stop Republicans from getting supermajorities in both chambers. If 3,500 votes had gone the other way, they would have those supermajorities now. So it, it was down to the wire. But because he can veto bills and the state legislature sustains those vetoes, he was able to veto a bill they passed this spring that would allow people to bring loaded guns onto school property in their cars. Um, that is not law because of his veto pen. He's vetoed 14 different voter suppression and election sabotage bills. He has vetoed a, a string of anti-reproductive rights bills. And Republicans are not only saying they would try to pass all these bills if they had the if they, if they get a trifecta in the state, they have a lot more coming. The kinds of really hideous voter suppression bills that became law in Georgia, Arizona, Texas, Florida, uh, those would absolutely be law in Wisconsin if it wasn't for having a governor who believes in democracy. So you mentioned the upholding of the vetoes, which was allowed to happen because Democrats prevented the Republicans from getting a two-thirds majority in the state legislature in 2020. Of course, Wisconsin has one of the worst Republican gerrymanders in the country. That's going to continue into the new decade. What are your goals as, from the point of view of the state party for the state legislative elections that are coming in November? And is there a candidate or two you'd like to highlight for those races? Absolutely. Republicans have managed to re-gerrymander the maps, at least for now, um, with some help, I should mention, from the U.S. Supreme Court, which unlike in other states, decided to reach down and strike down our state legislative maps uh, for reasons that will puzzle constitutional scholars for decades. So we have really, really tough maps this cycle. Uh, 
Republicans are explicitly trying to get supermajorities in both chambers yet again. And we are explicitly, determinedly working to stop them. We have great Democratic leaders in both chambers that we're working closely with, Greta Neubauer in the Assembly, Janet Buley in the state Senate. We have strong candidates across the state. Republicans are targeting folks like Katrina Shanklin in central Wisconsin and uh, Steve Doyle in western Wisconsin. Uh, really across the board in our, in our state, any place there's a Democrat, Republicans want to take them out. And in those districts, we're going to absolutely support our candidates and we'll be organizing everywhere because we believe in the reverse coattails effect that having candidates on the ballot and supporting those candidates turns out voters who can affect the top of the ticket as well. The, the essential thing is to make sure that they don't get the two-thirds majorities and to win the governorship. Then next year, just to squeeze this in, in April of 2023, we have a state Supreme Court race. There will not be a lot happening across the country in election days that spring, but that race will be for the majority in Wisconsin's state Supreme Court. If we can sustain the governor's veto and if we have a non-hyper right-wing majority in our state Supreme Court, that sets us up to have a secure and fair and real and legitimate election in 2024 when Wisconsin will probably be the tipping point state yet again. And so that's, that is the kind of uh, three hurdles that we have to jump through in order to make sure that the coup attempt that Republicans attempted in 2020 doesn't carry through in 2024. You know, it is almost a year off, but I would love to talk a little bit more about that state Supreme Court race, because at Daily Coast, we have been obsessed with these sorts of races for many years and only recently, really, I think, has the broader progressive movement finally begun to understood the importance of these races. And, you know, from my perspective, of course, I'd rather not be voting for judges at all, but this is the system that we have to live with. And the court right now is a 4-3, usually conservative majority. We could flip that because of this Republican seat that's coming up. So can you tell us a little bit about the candidates who are running and how the whole timing of that election works? Because the time of year is even a little bit unusual. Sure. So six months after November 8th, 2022, uh, it'll be April, uh, early April 2023, and Wisconsin will have a statewide election. Um, that will follow a February primary. There are already two kind of more progressive independent candidates who have announced their candidacy uh, on the right the, the current justice is uh, uh, Pat Rogensack, and she is retiring. She will be 81 when the election takes place. So it's an open seat. And the Republican rumored to be most likely to run is Dan Kelly, who's the candidate we defeated in 2020. Dan Kelly is a hyper-partisan Republican lawyer um, who Donald Trump endorsed in 2020 in a big rally and then kept talking about during his COVID briefings from the White House, which is you know, arguably a hatchback violation right there. But Trump was all in for him because he thought that Dan Kelly would cast the deciding vote in our state Supreme Court to overturn the election results if he lost. As it was, uh, we had one more vote against Trump than there were votes for Trump, and Trump was not able to overturn the election results in our state. So uh, Dan Kelly is talking publicly about trying again and making sure that that guy does not get in our state Supreme Court is just absolutely critical to people who who want to live in a democracy nationally. There shouldn't be so much that rests on Wisconsin State Supreme Court decisions for the future of democracy in, in the entire United States, but this is where we are. So that, you know, I, I hope folks will circle in their calendar April of 2023, um, and we're going to need all the help we can get to mobilize and, and shoot up turnout in an election um, that, you know, historically the, the kind of odd-numbered year spring elections have not been a giant national and, and statewide focus. So how can our Wisconsinite listeners get in touch with the Democratic Party in their state and get more involved? 
So wherever you might be, uh, you can support Democrats and the Democratic Party of Wisconsin in fighting for victory for Governor Evers and in defeating Ron Johnson, in electing Dems up and down the ballot, including defeating Derek Van Norden, who's a he was at the January 6th insurrection and is currently on probation for trying to bring a gun on a plane. He's running for Congress in the 3rd Congressional District, which is an open seat. Uh, we need help across the board. And you can get involved. You can become a monthly donor. That is the single, my favorite thing you can do. If you go to withdems.org slash monthly, you can sign up to, to give a few bucks a month. That helps us to hire and know that we'll be able to keep our staff on month over month, year over year. And that in turn allows us to do the kind of deep long-term organizing, building neighborhood teams that I've been talking about that helps us win, especially in these tough elections like the spring state Supreme Court race next year. So wisdoms.org slash monthly is great. Go to wisdoms.org slash convention to watch our state party convention wherever you might be or register and, and come to, to join us in La Crosse on June 25th to 26th. And finally, I'll give the link wisdoms.org slash volunteer. You can join our virtual phone banks. You can join our, our volunteer operation to turn out every possible Democratic voter. Races here are so close, so often. I was just talking to uh, someone whose county board majority is in place because of a five-vote margin. Uh, that kind of thing is not uncommon across our state. And so helping turnout votes can have a huge impact, not just on the lives of Wisconsinites, but on in the lives of everyone affected by who has the majority in the U.S. Senate or who the U.S. president is or who is affected by the U.S. House majority, which is everybody on earth. Uh, so Get involved with wisdom.org slash monthly slash donate slash volunteer and slash convention. We've been talking with Ben Wickler, the chair of the Wisconsin Democratic Party, about all of the intensely competitive races coming up this year and, in fact, next year as well in his state. Ben, thank you so much for joining us on the Down Ballot today. It has been my great pleasure. Thanks so much, Nears. Thanks so much, Beard. That's all from us this week. Thanks to Ben Wickler for joining us. The Down Ballot comes out every Thursday, everywhere you listen to podcasts. You can reach us by email at thedownballot at dailycoast.com. If you haven't already, please like and subscribe to The Down Ballot and leave us a five-star rating and review. Thanks to our producer, Kara Zelaya, and editor Tim Einenkel. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Mm-hmm.